Welcome to the Epicenter Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message from the Gospel series, where we reveal one book of the New Testament every week. For more information about Epicenter Church, visit epicenterchurch.com.au. So today I get um, the privilege and the honour to talk to you guys a little bit about the book of Titus. Yeah. So before I start, there's a couple of things I want to mention. Um, first, it's my first time, so I'm pretty nervous. Um, but I'd like, to thank the, I'd like to thank the worship team because they set an atmosphere that got me out of my head a little bit and you know, just stopped me second-guessing myself as much and just let me just be in the moment and get up here and do this. So cheers, guys and girls. Um, secondly, the book of Titus is an instructional letter with a really strong focus on the moral and character standards of people that are going to be appointed into church roles, into leadership, into eldership. Um, so as I talk about that a little bit, I'll be offering my opinions and observations and interpretations of what that looked like back then, what it looks like now in, in the church organisation, and what it looks like in the church body as a whole. So even though I prepared and prayed and researched as best that I can, there's always a chance that some of my own insecurities and biases have crept in a little bit. So Rob mentioned it last week that just because it's being said from up here, don't take it as truth without checking it yourself. Like, I've done the best I can, but if it doesn't sit right with you, just run it past the word, have a conversation with God yourself, just before taking it on board um, completely. Cool. All right, so let's just start with the facts. Um, The book of Titus was written around 63 AD. It was written by Paul to Titus, uh, who Galatians tells us uh, was a Greek who we assume was converted... Uh, to Christianity through Paul's ministry. Um, it, was, it has a lot of similarities in style and theme as First and Second Timothy's, as they were written around the same time, and scholars often put them together in a group called the Pastoral Letters because they were written to pastors. So after a, a release from his first Roman imprisonment, Paul, Timothy, and Titus uh, travelled to the island of Crete as part of a preaching tour. Um, once they were there... Paul and Timothy continued on, and Titus stayed behind to set up, um, yeah, to set up new churches. Unlike some of the other letters in the New Testament, which mainly focus on restoring or, a, or encouraging established churches, the book of Titus is more about setting a culture or establishing order for young churches. Um, this was an essential mandate for Titus because there was a problem on the island of Crete, not just with disbelief, and not just with people practicing other faiths, paganistic rituals, etc. Um, there was a real issue with the Judaic Christian part of the community. There was an issue with the believers. Uh, chapter, Titus chapter 1, verse 16, paints it simply. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for anything good. That was the culture Titus was stepping into. He was stepping into a group of people who claimed to know God, but didn't act accordingly. That's also the culture that the community would have seen. They would have been looking at the churches and seeing you know, a, hippo, a lot of hypocrites, and it just wouldn't have been a very inviting place to be. So over the next three chapters, Paul lists some strategies and ways to combat this sort of behaviour um, on how to, see, how to create a successful church in a paganistic community with very immature Christians. So a really, really quick overview. Chapter 1 lists the qualifiers for church elders and leaders. Chapter 2 goes on to give 
a framework for what different groups in the church should be doing and teaching to other groups in the church to build them up. And chapter 3 rounds the book out with, with a call to let sound doctrine run our lives, to always be on the lookout to do good things. Uh, it also then reminds us of God's grace, mercy and salvation, and that through our own works, there's not much hope, but through God's, yeah, everything, is, everything is possible. So, let's dive in a bit. Uh, chapter 1, which I said, is about appointing church elders. Starting in verse 6, uh, Titus uh, presents us with a list of qualifiers of what an elder should li- live up to. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. It's a pretty good list. Um, When I look at it, I don't see anything on there that I disagree with. I look at that list and I go, yeah, that's who I want for someone who's an elder or a leader or a role model or even just something, somebody that I could aspire to be like in the future. However, when I give it some like, practical thought, I run into an issue when I try to apply it to the church culture back then. See, in the time of Titus in Crete, this list would have been really hard to tick off consistently. There would not have been an abundance of people who would have ticked all those qualifiers off um, yeah, so there was a lack of people who would have been qualified to fill the role of elder in those churches. These were new churches, unestablished, in a culture which was not in the best moral or spiritual state. Uh, verse 12 says it best. Um, even one of their prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. So there's something missing here. Either, either the people of Crete or the Cretans were living a lot purer lives than we are led to believe, or maybe Titus is bringing people in from other cultures and other communities to establish a good moral backbone, but it doesn't say that, or maybe something else is going on. Bringing it out of history a little bit and into the modern day and trying applying it to the church as an organisation, I run into the same problem. If I was to take somebody's entire life history and then compare it to that list of qualifiers, I doubt I would find anybody who, is, who, who passes. Right? I mean, if I take uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, which is, but I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart as an indication that our thought lives are just as important as our actions. Every time I've had a bad day, every time someone's annoyed me and I've had an angry thought about them, I've instantly failed the do not be quick-tempered yeah, part of the qualifiers. Instantly, because even if I don't act out of it. So what's the point of these sorts of lists? I mean, surely it's not there just to put us into a place of condemnation. Surely it's not there to go, hey, here's the stand that you're never going to live up to. Because that's not what the New Testament should be about. Before I prove that's not the case, there's a couple of questions I want you to consider. Do you think that there is anything that should permanently disqualify somebody from being appointed or hired into a 
you know, church roll. If you answered no, you could probably skip the next 30 seconds. <laughs> if yes, if there is something that does disqualify somebody, does that same thing then disqualify them um, from being a leader in a non-official capacity within the church body? And is there anything that would permanently disqualify us from God's love, God's plan for us, God's salvation, God's mercy? I, I kind of hope no to the last one. All right. These are important questions because they help us define how we judge people. It helps us be aware of what sins we hire higher than other sins and which ones we you know, can justify away easier. They can even, it can even help identify beliefs that we didn't know we held. And that's important to, to realise what we know because what we say is truth is a direct reflection of what we believe God says is truth. What I give value to reflects directly what I believe God gives value to. And what I look down on, more importantly, is a direct reflection of what I believe God opposes. So if I'm putting qualifiers on people, yeah, that's, that's a real problem because I'm actually saying that God puts qualifiers on people. So if I'm saying that somebody's disqualified, what I'm really saying is that I don't think they're good enough, that they're not worthy, and more scarily, I'm actually saying that I don't think God thinks they're good enough, that I don't think God thinks they're worthy. Now, don't, understand what, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Um, like criteria and standards are really, really important when hiring people within church positions. But I'm just trying to highlight a difference between disqualifying somebody, which is saying that they'll never be good enough, versus them being unqualified, which is they're not good enough now, but there's still the potential. Um, to put a really, really easy example of it, this is my forklift license. This gives me a qualification to drive a forklift. Does anyone else have a, have a forklift license? A couple of us, good. The rest of you are unqualified to drive a forklift. You're not disqualified, you can do the training, you can pay for the course, you can, you can take the steps to improve and earn the qualifications if you choose to. That's, that's the difference I'm trying to point out, if that makes sense. I knew that'd be useful. <laughs> About five years is the last time I drove a forklift, yeah. <laughs> So if I take the very, very, very first qualifier on that list in Titus, which is to be blameless, then the fact of the matter is that in ourselves, we are all unqualified. There's only one true qualifier, and that is salvation through Christ. It's God's mercy and forgiveness that makes us um, blameless, it makes us holy, it makes us flawless, and makes our past life wiped clean. Um, and that's the only thing that makes sense in the narrative of Titus. If Titus and us are looking for people who are living blameless lives, we're not going to have much luck. However, if we look at people, if we take that standard and look at where people are today, not where they've been, but what they're doing today, we start to find candidates. More importantly, we start to see people who are currently outliving some of these qualities, but not all of them. But as they grow and mature in Christ, they'll start ticking more of these boxes off. So this list and many others, like there's quite a few of them in the New Testament. Um, Timothy's got one, Thessalonians has got one. There's quite a few of these lists of, of what we should aspire to be are guidelines for us to live by. Yeah. To help us look at the areas of our lives that we aren't letting God into 
to help identify our weaknesses so that we can take them to God and make them our strengths. Like I know that I'm really focusing on just that one verse at this point in time, and I will move on, um, but I really just want to make sure everyone understands the importance of verses like this. Um, the point is that it's giving us a guideline to live by, not a checklist to, check, uh, to judge others by. Just to prove that point really, really quickly, look at the author of the book. Let's look at Paul. He is, one of the, he is the most prolific author in the New Testament. You could argue Luke wrote more words, but that's not the point. Um, he was responsible for a lot of the early church movement and imperative in the, in the success of the early church. Yet, if we ignore his salvation and conversion to Christianity, he's not really qualified to do any of that. Paul, back, Paul, back when he was still called Saul, definitely wasn't hospitable. He wasn't opposed to violence. He had it in for the early church. Um, Acts chapter 8, verse 3 says, but, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them into prison. Not the guy I would be turning to to start planting churches. But then, he, but then he has a real encounter with God, which transforms his life, his beliefs, his behaviours and his thoughts, and God uses him amazingly. So just before I move on, hopefully I've given you something to think about the next time scriptures like that bring about judgment, condemnation, or just, like, just a feeling that you don't quite measure up to them. There is nobody that's beyond redemption, beyond qualification, and everybody has the potential for God to use them. So use them to self-assess and identify the areas that God wants to work on you. Okay? All right. Chapter one done for now, unless I decide to come back to it, which I will. Chapter two and three, um, I'm going to speak about together because they're pretty closely linked. Um, So keep in mind that the Cretans and Titus' time were not really known for their high high moral standards at all. They, yeah. Um, They weren't known for giving... uh, they weren't known for living good lives. So Paul instructs Titus in these two chapters on how to approach, teach, and guide these people. The biggest problem on Crete seemed to be that regardless of the belief structure, poor behaviours and choices were the norm. People didn't seem to want to do what was right. They just did what they wanted to do. So Paul's strategy to combat this was to have Titus teach, show, and remind them that gratitude and worship of God leads to good deeds. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 1 says, Remind the people to be subject to rules and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable, considerate, and show true humility to all men. Note the word remind. It doesn't say demand or enforce. It's not a heavy-handed command, you know, this is what you must do. It's a gentle reminder just to help stir the thoughts and actions of the people that we're talking to. Essentially, as a really simplistic take, remind the people they shouldn't be breaking the law. I think the same reminder can be said to us. Even though we live under grace, we shouldn't be texting while driving. We shouldn't be lying in our business dealings to make more money for ourselves if it's dishonest. We have laws in our society that we are held accountable to and we should respect and obey them. Be ready to do whatever is good. This sounds obvious, but in the real world, it's not always that clear-cut. Quite often, we find ourselves in situations where we'll see where it ends up or we'll reserve judgment to the end. 
So I think a, a better starting point or a better way of phrasing that would be be ready to not do anything that is bad. Like it's the same point, but it's a bit more clear cut, I think. Chapter 2, verse 12 says in relation to God's salvation, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. I get it as I say, I say it out loud, it's pretty obvious. Do good, don't do bad. Like we should all know this, right? We should. But I don't think in a day-to-day scenario we have a clearly defined yes or no. I think we do wait and see where things will turn up, and then by that point it's too late. You know, the action's already taken, the thought process has already gone downhill. So this verse is telling us to be vigilant. It's telling us to be the example of Jesus right here and right now, not after the fact, not in hindsight, as it's happening. To slander no one seems pretty straightforward, but it also means to not do it when people can't hear you. To be peaceable and considerate and to show true humility towards all men. Can you imagine how the church would look if we all outworked that perfectly today? It's not even telling us to have perfect thought lives. Imagine if from the outside, the church as a whole was seeing good works, not breaking the law, not bad-mouthing other parts of the community. And at the same time, not making a fuss about how having these standards makes us better than the rest of the community. I'm not saying that like Epicenter isn't doing that well, because I think we are. But the church as a whole, on a global scale, definitely could do better. Um, this kind of standard would immediately and definitively diffuse a lot of the criticisms the public have about the church. The shouts of hypocrisy would be silenced. A lot of the perceived or projected hurt would be reduced. It would make the concept of church a lot more inviting and safe if the church acted as they, as they spoke. If we were doing what we said we were doing, people would trust us more. This is what Paul is trying to help Titus achieve. A church with a culture, uh, with a culture that, um, that acts in accordance with the words it was preaching. A church of integrity. So if we take a look at our own vision statement, like we want to be a church of irresistible influence. And like we're making really great strides in that. But imagine how quickly that would collapse if we didn't follow through on what we said we were going to do. If we didn't act with integrity, the trust that we've built up with the community, with the council, with the schools, more importantly with the people, would be shattered instantly. This is why setting and sustaining that sort of culture is really important because without it, you can't have any real growth. Paul then continues on in chapter, th- chapter 3, verses 3 through 8, uh, to remind Titus, and now to remind us, that at some point in our, time, at some point in our lives, we were no more holy, no more worthy, no more righteous or deserving than the Cretans were. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasure. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Saviour, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Saviour, so that having been justified by his grace we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. 
there's a few takeaways from this verse and the rest of the book. Um, and I really encourage everyone to, to read it. It's a really short book. Um, I've gone down one particular path today, but there's definitely a few other points that you could come up with yourself if you read through it. For me, this verse is telling us uh, that for us as Christians, we should be devoting ourselves to be doing what is good and that this is a benefit not just for us, but for everybody around us, believers or not. Chapter 2 then goes a little more specifically and tells Titus to train older men to be worthy of respect, to be sound in faith, and likewise to teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, to not be slanderers, with the main reason for this um, is for them to train the younger men and women to live a life of self-control. Chapter 2, verse 7. In everything, set an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing, to, because they have nothing bad to say about us. It's the same point. Um, set a culture of integrity so that internally there's plenty of good examples of for people who are new or struggling with their faith. There's plenty of examples of people who are living good lives. They've got plenty of people to turn to for teaching, for correction, just for help and advice. And from the outside, people looking in, trying to find flaws or criticisms, won't see any because we're acting in accordance with our words. It's it's interesting for me to look at honestly and objectively because I believe that um, Epicenter as an organisation does it really well. But for me personally... There's definitely things I need to work on. Like I know I get caught up in conversations that go down past they probably shouldn't. Yeah, thanks for the support, guys. That's good, yeah. Um, I know there are times where I get angry with people. I know at work there are customers that come in and I could strangle them. Like I don't, but, but I could. Like I know there are a lot of areas in my life that I need to work on and improve. But I also know that I'm a lot better than I was two years ago. I'm better than I was one year ago. I'm better than I was six months ago. And I know that I can use books like this to continue to help identify areas that I need to work on so that in another six months' time, I'll look back and go, I'm better than I was today. So before I finish this off, um, the the book of Titus is a really simple book that helps define what a healthy church culture should look like. Uh, For me, it's a good way for it to check where I am in that culture, if I'm setting it or if I'm against it or just on the side of it. To shine a light on the areas I'm not doing so well in, um, not so that I can like, wallow in my failings, but so I can take them to God and have an honest conversation and say, okay, God, this is what I need to get better at. This is areas that you're pointing out to me that I'm not perfect in or that need improvement and I can take that to him and work through that. Being a follower of Jesus is hard sometimes. It requires self-assessment, self-reflection, and the capacity to be critical and honest with yourself to help identify your strengths and weaknesses so that they can be used to God's advantage. Now, I know I spent most of this in Chapter 1. I'm going to go back there. Um, I've made it pretty clear that Chapter 1 is about appointing church elders and then, by extension, church leaders. But every single one of us is a leader in some, some sort of capacity, whether it's within the church whether it's in our family lives, whether it's in our workplace, just in the community, or just with the strangers that come and go in our lives. All of us impact somebody. All of us are setting an example for somebody else. 
every one of us has a voice, whether we know it's being heard or not. That's why I think this book is for everybody. It's not just for those looking for a role within a church, because we all have a role within the church. You know, I think we get too bogged down on the, the, the corporate side of stuff as opposed to the personal side of stuff. So check yourself against it. Some of it might not apply to you directly, like the bit about being a husband of but one wife. Probably not relevant at this point if you're single or dating or a woman. Um, <laughs> but look at the behaviour that it's addressing. So, like, guys, are you a one-woman kind of guy? Girls, are you a, are you a one-guy kind of girl? That's what it's asking. It's addressing the behaviour. So don't get bogged down in the literal. Look at the behaviour it's addressing and make an honest self-assessment on where you are currently at in your life. That's what's important, and that's what I'd encourage you to take away from the book. All righty? Cool. Well, I'm going to pray, because that's what you do at the end of a message. Everybody knows that. Right? God, I thank you that, that you never disqualify us, that no matter what we've done or where we're at, we are never so far gone that there's no path back to you, Lord. We thank you that as soon as we are ready to, you will make a path for us, that you will find a way to qualify us, to use our strengths to grow us as people as soon as we accept the fact that you love us and that you want us to follow you. I pray, Lord, that we don't get stuck in a cycle of condemnation, that we don't look at these books and go, I'm never going to live up, I'm not good enough, I, or that person's not good enough, that we look at it and go, ooh, okay, that area I'm not so crash hot with, and I can get better in that. I pray, God, that in our dealings with others, we identify the same thing, that we look at that and go, at some point, if, even if we're mature Christians now, at some point we weren't, and the people we're dealing with may, may not be. That doesn't make us better than them. I pray, God, that we just look for the opportunity to always be doing what is good. That we are a church of integrity. That our dealings with the public or with anybody are above reproach. That from the outside, no one can look at us and say, we're hypocrites, that we are that we have integrity. And just because I've always wanted to do this, and everybody said, yay. (laughs) Just one last thing before I give the mic back to Rob. I know we've already clapped, but I wrote this entire message, and I didn't refer once to my favourite verse in it. So, so... Yeah, Bramo knows. Um, so if you're ever in a situation, either in person or online more likely, where somebody's trying to argue over Christianity with you, using verses from Leviticus in particular, it's the easiest one to use it with, just tell them to go read Titus chapter 3, verse 9, and then walk away. I'm not going to read it for you, so you can look it up yourselves. So, yeah, chapter 3, verse 9. Yeah. Now you can have the mic back. Thanks, Chris. Do you want me to read it? I'll write it down, yeah. Do you want me to read it? You can. So you left everyone in suspense. I had to write it by hand, though. I've got awful writing. You can't read my writing. Good luck. Yeah, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Chris. That was, that was really, really good. Really, really good. 
I love the thought that we would all disqualify ourselves if it was based on our past. I love how Chris um, highlighted to us that Paul himself, the guy that wrote the book and several other books, or nearly the entire New Testament, or the majority of it, would be disqualified from doing just that if it was based on his past. And what I noticed that we're all really good at is dragging our past into our future. And so my question for you guys, on top of all the questions that Chris has answered or asked, how are you disqualifying you? Like, are we people that are looking at nitpicking everything that we've done wrong in the past and bringing that straight back into the future and allowing that to define who we are and define what we can do and define what we can't do? What are, what are you allowing to disqualify you? And this is my encouragement. Jesus has already qualified you. So if you want prayer for anything, if, you want, um, if you're struggling with disqualifying yourself, if you're struggling with disqualifying others, I know Chris would love the opportunity to come, if you guys come to the front and, um, and pray with you and, and help release you, you from that. If, you got, if you need healing in your body, we'd love to pray with you as well. If there's anything that you want prayer for, we'd love to pray for you. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. Please subscribe to hear more sermons from Epicenter Church.